0: So t- we're going to be talking about, I'm Martin Cheadle from the uh, Perelman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm joined by my wonderful colleagues, uh, Dr. Peter Yeaves, an assistant professor in anesthesiology at the S- University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Prisbikowski, who left academia and went into private practice. You see the smile on his face. He's an interventional pain physician, great guy, and Dr. Ignacio Badiola, who's also an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Penn. So what we're going to be talking about today is functional pain syndrome. So these syndromes that really cause a lot of suffering for a lot of people. And as clinicians, sometimes we feel we don't have a lot of arrows in our quivers to help them. How much uh, duloxetine can we throw at somebody and and hope that it does something? So we're going to try to have a nice, balanced talk here. So this is what our topic is going to be. Dr. Badiolo is going to be talking about the neurobiology of functional pain. It's very important to understand about central sensitization because it will really feed in to both you know, traditional and novel treatments, uh, uh, interventions. Dr. Yee is going to talk about uh, non-pharmacologic and interventional approaches uh, to functional pain uh, syndromes, particularly around, I guess, pelvic pain, vulvodynia. Uh, Dr. is going to be talking about the pharmacologic approaches and management, and then I'm going to talk about sort of a biopsychosocial treating the whole person. So again, you had good lunches, try to stay awake, and we'll turn it over to Dr. Badiola. Thank you.
1: All right, so none of us have any disclosures um, for today's presentation. All right, and what I'm going to be talking about today um, is going to be about the neurobiology of, of functional pain. And the the problem that we have right now uh, is in our current medical system when a patient complains of pain and no physiological problem is found or no organic problem is found, um, even though they've been fully worked up using today's um, methods, um, we basically deem their pain functional uh, and uh, and label them as having uh, a functional uh, pain syndrome. And that basically frustrates not only physicians, um, providers, but also patients as well. Um, you know, not only due to the vagueness of complaints, the lack of laboratory findings, um, lack of traditional imaging—you know, the MRI looks normal, the X-ray looks normal—and um, then the very nonspecific uh, and moderate at best uh, treatments that we have uh, available for them. And from the patient's perspective, it's the same thing. You know, a lot of them uh, get that skeptic look, not only from the provider, also from their, their family members, um, just because nothing can be found as a reason for them to to, to be having pain. And so we tend to label these depending on which provider or what kind of specialty the patient goes to see. Um, they, if they have generalized widespread pain, they get, ter- they get labeled with uh, fibromyalgia. If they have abdominal pain as their main presenting symptom, they get labeled with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, if they have urinary system problems, interstitial cystitis and bladder pain syndrome. Um, and then the question basically becomes is, even though these are all, seem to be different uh, symptoms, the question is whether they have an underlying uh, common mechanism or common I mean, uh, pathophysiology. And what my goals today are basically not to look at the actual organs themselves, so to not look at the bladder as the underlying problem or the, uh, or the bowel um, or even the musculoskeletal system, um, but instead what we're gonna try to look at and focus on is the central nervous system as the actual source of, of, their, of their pain. A lot of this information, um, there's a really great review um, that wasn't pressed when I last checked it about a month ago. Um, it might be out already by Dr. Um, Slook and Dr. Claw, um, who have done a lot of research on the neurobiology um, and pathophysiology of um, fibromyalgia uh, and chronic w- uh, widespread pain. Um, neuroscience. Um, So really briefly, um, some of the other guys will get into a little bit more detail on this, but uh, in general, uh, fibromyalgia affects about 2% or so of the general population. Um, The symptoms are very diverse. They not only affect the the musculoskeletal system uh, and basically throughout the body, but they also affect other um, uh, problems as well. So they cause sleep problems, mood disturbances, anxiety, depression, and all that together kind of feeds into um, what the patient experiences. It's mostly seen in women. And there is significant overlap with a lot of other functional disorders, including TMJ, IBS, and chronic fatigue. Um, And interestingly, originally it was thought that it was a peripheral problem, um, and so it was labeled basically as fibrositis or an inflammation, um, and that's been changed more recently, obviously, to fibromyalgia as the process doesn't seem to be an inflammation uh, in the periphery. So the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, There's new guidelines, well, relatively newer guidelines from the American College of uh, Rheumatology. We always think of it as a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning they've had a full workup to be sure that there's nothing else that could be causing their pain. Um, But you also don't want to just throw the diagnosis around on anybody that comes in with pain, which you can't find a diagnosis of. best example I can give you um, is uh, relatively recently I saw a patient who had a total knee replacement. Uh, and uh, still continued with pain afterwards. Of course, the x-rays look fine, everything looks good. She also had a long-standing history of some back pain and some shoulder pain, and she was told by her orthopedist that she had fibromyalgia. And obviously now she has to walk around with this, um, and obviously she came in to see me and had a ton of questions. Um, so you do wanna be very careful in terms of who you uh, label with having this um, this diagnosis. Um, the other thing is we tend to, to, to diagnose it using um, Certain criteria, specifically um, pushing on different parts of their body. Um, 11 out of 18 tender points is what uh, is usually um, used to diagnose. Um, But these tender points may be useful for research, but clinically, there's a strong association of tender points with distress, patient expectation, and the fact that 11 tender points out of 18 is actually arbitrary. There's really nothing special about those. Um, 18 tender points. and I'm sure you guys have done it before. If you've pushed in different areas, they're also still gonna be having pain in those those areas. All right, I don't know why this came up again. Um, All right, so this this is not presenting correctly, but um, what this is meant to show basically is that it's a combination of um, genetics and environment. Um, Currently, there's a very strong familial component Um, with uh, first degree relatives showing about eight times the risk of developing um, fibromyalgia uh, uh, compared to the general population. Um, The other thing to keep in mind though is that other factors may be be in play as well um, with learned patterns of behavior uh, evolving in families and actually influencing how specific individuals react to stress uh, and anxiety. Um, Other things are uh, family members are much more tender than the general population. So if you have a patient with fibromyalgia, you actually do an exam on a family member, they tend to be somewhat more painful uh, or tender as well. And family members are more likely to have uh, other functional pain syndromes such as IBS uh, and TMJ as well. Uh, Current current twin studies um, suggest about a 50-50 split between genetics and environment. And what is interesting is that there are genetic polymorphisms um, or differences in genetics where there are actual changes um, in uh, serotonin receptors, dopamine receptors, and some other transporters. Um, and all of these are important in uh, the human stress response. Uh, in terms of uh, environment, um, there are other environmental stressors as well. Um, things such as physical trauma um, can, can obviously lead to uh, and uh, trigger someone to develop uh, chronic widespread pain. Other diseases that are associated with it are infectious things like hepatitis C, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, and Lyme disease. Emotional stress can trigger it, and uh, hormonal uh, diseases can uh, as well. However, it's not these diseases that are actually causing it. Only about 5% at most of patients uh, who develop or who get these infectious diseases and other stressors will, will go on to develop uh, chronic widespread pain. So pathophysiology of enhanced uh, pain processing Um, Tenderness, again, is not confined to tender points, um, but it actually extends throughout the body. The tender points are influenced by the stress. And interestingly, it's not just noxious stimulus um, that these patients are more sensitive to, but they are more sensitive to things such as heat stimuli, cold stimuli, electrical stimuli, and even things like smell and auditory tone. And so there is support also on functional imaging uh, for amplification of all types of sensory information and stimulation. Uh, on functional imaging studies specifically looking at specifically in areas that are pronociceptive, where they will actually be uh, consistently more hyperactive uh, in these patients and so we do have imaging studies that that collaborate or corroborate with some of the, th- of the symptoms that these pa- patients are having but it's not the uh, the typical imaging that we typically order things like regular MRIs um, and, and CT scans So the question is what exactly is actually lowering that pain threshold? Why are these patients more susceptible to having that external stimulus or that peripheral stimulus um, triggering uh, widespread pain? And so the main thought is that there's a combination of uh, a reduction in descending inhibition as well as hyperactivity of excitatory afferent systems. And I'll I'll explain uh, both of these in a little bit more detail. The first is reduced descending inhibition, so generally what happens is when a healthy volunteer, me, you, anybody else has any kind of noxious stimulus uh, applied, um, any kind of painful stimulus, your body will tend to send out a signal to kind of dampen pain or or whole body analgesia basically. Um, And this is actually decreased or absent in in many uh, fibromyalgia patients. Um, So the thought is that this descending inhibition is brought on by two systems, you have an opioid, uh, op- opioid system, as well as the descending inhibition through serotonergic and noradrenergic uh, pathways. Um, interestingly, in terms of the, uh, the opioid pathway, um, these patients have endo- endogenous opioid activity already elevated at baseline. So um, a lot of these patients already have, even at baseline without any pain symptoms, already have um, significant uh, endogenous opioid release. And I'll show you some studies in a minute where um, the receptors in the, uh, in, the, in the central nervous system that bind opioids are already um, um, basically at capacity um, in, in some of these fibromyalgia patients. And clinically we see that with fibromyalgia patients not typically responding that well um, to, to opioids. Um, unlike the opioid system where these patients are already um, hyperactive, that the other descending uh, inhibitory system um, that's related to the serotonin and the noradren- or noradrenergic system Um, is actually decreased, Um, and there's evidence for this where in the CSF, these patients actually have uh, lower levels of norepinephrine uh, and uh, serotonin. And clinically, we see that the medicines that we use to help some of these patients, things like duloxetine, um, cebalar, milcinopran, TCAs, and tramadol, uh, which is a norepinephrine and serotonin, uh, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, are somewhat more effective than, than opioids. So we, there's lower uh, descending inhibition, um, and, and obviously that's important. The other side of the, of the, uh, of the coin is hyperactivity of the excitatory afferent uh, systems. And here what we see is we see central sensitization, um, and I'll, I'll go over what central sensitization is in a minute. There's also increased levels of pronociceptive substances in the CSF of fibromyalgia patients, both um, glutamate and substance P. Substance P uh, sometimes up to three times as high in the, central, in the uh, CSF and glutamate up to two times as high compared to controls. Um, and clinically, we see that things like exercise, um, which is one of the proven modalities of treatment for fibromyalgia, actually alters endogenous neurotransmission. What, the, what it does is it actually increases antinociceptive neurotransmitters uh, and reduces glutamate. So central sensitization, what it is, it's basically a um, process we all undergo it to some point. So if you're going to have surgery, for example, um, if you get any kind of incision, any kind of trauma, um, that traumatic insult in the periphery causes nerves to fire, amongst other things, which you know basically fires into your central nervous system. And this bombardment of information into the central nervous system initially causes changes in the central nervous system. Um, including neurotransmitter release and in some cases uh, changes in gene expression what it does is it actually um, increases a receptive field of where this pain information is coming from so not only is the area where it actually hurts or where you actually got hurt that is painful but the surrounding area as well and in many people if you're not genetically prone or if the insult is not long enough um, all that kind of dies down and you go back to your baseline state And some people, whether it's because of genetics or because that central, or because that peripheral um, input just keeps coming in, um, you start to get changes in gene expression, and that in and of itself can cause uh, something to persist, even once that peripheral insult has been stopped. An example of this that we may see uh, a lot of um, is in patients who have a large, for example, large herniated disc that's compressing a specific nerve root. and uh, some are more prone to this than others, but they actually have their surgery. The nerve root gets decompressed. Everything looks perfect in the OR under the microscope. Everything looks perfect um, on the MRI afterwards, but they're still complaining of continued pain uh, in that nerve root distribution, Um, and the thought is that the central nervous system has formed a memory of that pain, so even though that peripheral stimulus is gone, they're still having that pain um, because they basically formed the memory of it, and what's important from a medication perspective is that the NMDA receptors uh, and glutamate are important uh, are important in this process, and um, there are some medications that may actually reverse this this process. Um, the other uh, issue is uh, wind up, uh, and basically, what wind up is when that information gets um, put in, or that painful stimulus gets put into the central nervous system, um, there is an increase in the perception of pain intensity over time. So, basically, what happens is uh, the wind-up, you, you basically have a, a painful stimulus, goes into the central nervous system, and that can continue bombardment uh, over, over time uh, when a given stimulus is delivered repeatedly above a critical rate. So um, the more that stimulus comes in, the higher the chances of you developing that central sensitization. Um, what we have noticed, again, is that CNS uh, transmitters are, that are seen in wind-up, things like substance P and glutamate are elevated. Uh, in fibromyalgia patients, uh, in pronociceptive regions of the brain as well. So augmented uh, pain and sensory processing, processing due to the reduction in inhibition and amplification of pain transmission uh, due from central sensitization, the patient perceives basically pain out of proportion um, than what we see in the peripheral. So everything, again, looks good in the periphery, but they're still complaining of pain uh, that is out of proportion. There's also uh, experimental studies uh, use, using experimental pain and um, quantitative sensory testing methods, um, which all suggest basically that um, there is biological amplification uh, of all sensory stimuli, not only noxious stimuli, but painful stimuli as well. Um, this is a uh, picture, this is an interesting study. This was actually a study done in the early 2000 um, by Dr. Claw uh, as well. Um, and basically what it shows is you have a stimulus. They basically did functional imaging studies on fibromyalgia patients and controls. They gave them a, uh, a, a painful stimulus um, based on, on pressure um, and the patients rated their pain intensity. And you can see here that at, at any given stimulus, uh, the controls reported less pain compared to fibromyalgia patients. And it wasn't until that stimulus was high enough or at, at a much higher level, that volunteer patients actually felt the same pain intensity as controls. Um, and what we see here is the actual uh, imaging studies of the patients with fibromyalgia. What it shows is that at these low stimulus intensities um, where healthy volunteers didn't report any pain, these patients actually had areas of um, the brain that actually lit up, um, that actually, they, they, they basically showed that there was some um, uh, the, pro- the pronociceptive regions of the is actually lit up. Um, the other thing that's been noticed with, with fibromyalgia patients is that, uh, that there's more connectivity between normal parts of the brain and pronociceptive regions of the brain. So there's a, um, an area of the brain called the default mode network, which is basically um, the parts of the brain that are working for you when you're not really performing any tasks. So when you're just sitting there daydreaming and not really doing anything. Um, And uh, in healthy volunteers, there's less connectivity compared to fibromyalgia patients uh, or generalized uh, uh, pain patients where there's more connectivity between the insula, which is a pronociceptive region uh, of the brain and that default mode network. And what they also noticed is that the degree of increased connectivity um, was related to the intensity of ongoing spontaneous pain. So the more connectivity between these two regions, the more pain uh, and spontaneous pain that these patients reported. Um, they also notice that there's less connections between areas that are associated with antinose reception in the brain during during these restful states, um, and so the less or less connectivity you have between these two re- brain regions, the more uh, pain that these patients would re- uh, would report as well. All right, and then this is the um, the windup uh, that we just recently talked about. So again, in in normal in normal people, healthy volunteers, there's that that balance between excitation and inhibition, and it's that balance that basically reproduces or produces a steady state where where someone doesn't experience any pain. Um, uh, What we talked about before, um, there's a reduction um, in uh, the noxious inhibitory, uh, or there's something called a diffuse noxious inhibitory control, um, where again, application of an intense painful stimulus leads to generalized whole body analgesia. Um, and not only in, in, in widespread pain, but in functional pain, you also see um, a reduction in that. Uh, endogenous opioids, as we noted before, the tone is uh, normal or increased compared to volunteer patients. Um, and uh, fibromyalgia patients actually have higher levels of uh, CSF encaphalins and other um, uh, endogenous opioids. All right, and this is a uh, another uh, study done looking at mu opioid receptor binding um, potential in fibromyalgia patients, um, and these are just three um, areas of the brain that are that are associated with um, with um, with opioid binding and pain, and you can see that at baseline, um, fibromyalgia patients actually have a decrease in the uh, in mu opioid receptor binding potential. So these opioid receptors are already um, basically blocked. Um, or have opioids on them uh, at baseline. All right, so really briefly, um, psychological factors uh, in fibromyalgia, uh, specifically looking at stress. So we all know that these patients tend to be a little bit more anxious, more depressed, in that any, any little push over their baseline can actually worsen their pain. There are various stressors that are correlated um, with the severity uh, of functional pain, usually they're better correlated with personal stressors rather than generalized stressors. So things that are affecting the patient personally tend to tend to um, um, exacerbate their pain symptoms. So there was an interesting study done back in two thousand and one, before and after the World Train Center um, uh, incidents uh, and the uh, the accidents at uh, or the uh, the um, the plane crash at the uh, at the Pentagon. Um, and what they what they did was they were doing other studies. And they measured the patient's pain response before the accident or before the uh, the terrorist act, and then afterwards. And there really was no change in these patients, even though they experienced, um, you know, something you would you would imagine would be pretty traumatic. Um, their pain levels didn't increase. But what did cause increases would be things that are again more personal. Um, you know, family member dying. Um, uh, you know, if they get fired from their job. Just basically anything that um, causes them personalized stress. Um, newer studies are also showing uh, hyper and hypoactivity in the hypothalamic uh, pituitary axis and functional pain syndromes. Um, this is not consistent um, and um, it varies between studies. And finally, really briefly, the immune system. Some studies are noting an increase in circulatory inflammatory mediators and enhanced release of cytokines. Um, this is not consistent across studies. There are some that show a decrease, and others show no difference uh, compared to controls. Um, And again, the studies that are available right now varied uh, due to low sample sizes uh, and analysis methods. Uh, Some interleukin cytokines, and tumor necrosis factor alpha um, may actually sensitize nerve endings and nociceptors and produce pain in humans. They're also known to produce hyperalgesia in animals. And so obviously, if these these interleukins and cytokines are elevated uh, in some of these patients, that may actually be producing um, some pain symptoms as well. Um, However, it doesn't seem that it is an inflammatory disease as anti-inflammatories and NSAIDs uh, have not been very uh, beneficial in these patients. So really briefly in in summary, most important things are you wanna be conscious about what you say to these patients. We're not at the point yet where we can maybe see what's going on. Um, A lot of this is more experimental, um, but who knows, maybe in 20 years we'll be able to do a test and something will light up and we'll say, um, you know you have fibromyalgia and and you are experiencing pain. Um, The other thing is that fibromyalgia uh, and other functional pain syndromes seem to have more of a central mechanism of pain as opposed to peripheral. And that central mechanism uh, is very similar between all uh, or most functional pain disorders. Um, And then again, just like any other chronic pain problem, you want to treat comorbid disorders, um, sleep and mood disorders particularly, um, and that will actually help uh, patients' pain uh, symptoms as well. Sure. A lot of people carry around this diagnosis from
2: doctor to doctor. What should be the minimum diagnostic evaluation
1: to make this diagnosis? So, I mean, there are criteria specifically to diagnose it. Um, most of that criteria is more research based. Usually, you know, if they have chronic generalized pain that's been there for a long time, they've seen a rheumatologist where other inflammatory type pains have been diagnosed or you know have been have been evaluated. Um, That may be one way to diagnose it. Most, you know, the criteria with the tender points, um, you know, usually nobody really does it the way it's supposed to be done, which is with four kilograms of pressure. Um, a lot of it is just pushed here and there. If it hurts, you know, and they've seen the rheumatologist and everything's normal, they get diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, but what you want is you want chronic generalized pain throughout their body. You want stuff that's been ruled out, other diseases that can kind of mimic it. Um, and you want to see, hopefully, a response to some of the medications that are available for them. I think they're That's,
0: yeah, that's not gonna fly. So, to mark that out. Yeah. And, and, and as Dr. Badiola said, it's really sometimes a, a diagnosis of exclusion. You're, you're, you're eliminating things like connective tissue disorders, other, other things. But the real key thing is it has to be bilateral above and below the waist. And so people come in and say, well, it kinda hurts here, kinda hurts there. By definition, it's not fibromyalgia. but I think it's a real tough thing to do. And, you know, Especially when they come in and they take a, a pain diagram is everything, you know? so it's tough. The images that you showed, um, was that kind of a before or after? Meaning, um, would you say that the, the different
1: synapses and the lack of connectivity um, has to do prior to you know, the diagnosis or after diagnosis? Which imaging? That, I, probably not um, in terms of the, the post-alignment. I can that I'm not sure about, though. Um, in terms of this being before or after, um, this is thought to be that this is their baseline. This is what they have, um, and this is what's leading to, to, to them not being able to basically produce that diffuse or that, that inhibitory signal that happens when it, whenever they feel a pain stimulus. Um, I don't think this is specifically anything or after any specific event or activity or anything like that. Um, so unlike grades, for example, we not be able to use something like this for, uh, for supportive diagnosis? You can't, but this is mostly used for research purposes now. Um, I don't think you can really order one of these specifically to, to rule this in or out. And even then, this is not really part of a diagnostic criteria. This is just more research-related stuff.
2: Okay, so I'm gonna um, change gears a little bit and talk about um, some of the interventional and uh, non-pharmacological approaches for treating functional pain syndromes. Um, If you are here this morning, you know that I also talked about the interventional procedures for some of these odd neuropathic pain syndromes. Um, So when I got my assignment to do this part, and I saw the diseases that I, that I was assigned. I, I thought it was a little bit harder because there's no real good um, interventional procedures to do for fibromyalgia or for interstitial cystitis. So I'll kind of look at some of the non-pharmacological approaches that people use for treatment and try to go into some of the evidence um, that is available for those treatment, treatment uh, modalities. So as uh, Ignacio was alluding to, uh, fibromyalgia is a complex um, disease state. I remember when I was doing residency when I was working with some of my pain attendings and that was probably 10 plus years ago, there are actually some attendings who didn't really believe in fibromyalgia as a disease state. Um, so looking at some of these functional MRIs and things that we have now, you know, there's been a lot of work in progress towards um, looking into how fibromyalgia Um, works as a disease, um, but there are a lot of symptoms that are associated with it, Um, a lot of systemic symptoms that people have, but probably the the most common one that we look at is a lot of the myofascial or or muscle-type symptoms, Um, and we target a lot of our therapies towards that. Um, One of the simple things that we try to advocate for patients with fibromyalgia is just just exercise, and I, I guess depending on our background, um, sometimes you know it's, it sounds like a simple thing, you just tell them to do it, just exercise, go out and exercise. But I think a lot of people have in their mind when you tell that to them, that they have to do a very high intensity workout or run a marathon or do something very extreme. But actually there are studies that have come out um, looking at exercise and just even doing low impact exercising, um, like riding a stationary bicycle. Um, or even doing aqua therapy show benefits in patients that have fibromyalgia. And just kind of on an anecdotal level, um, I try to really encourage my patients with fibromyalgia to go to aqua therapy and most of them, a majority of them do benefit from it and they actually enjoy it a lot. Um, There is a study, a a systematic review looking at exercise for fibromyalgia. It's a pretty big study with over 2,000 patients um, looking at 34 studies as a meta-analysis. About half of them are assigned to exercise. Um, They found that just doing aerobic type exercising only, it can benefit the, uh, the symptoms of fibromyalgia and improve their physical functioning overall. And even just strength training, light weight training, things like that, it can improve fibromyalgia symptoms. A lot of the mind-body type um, exercises and modalities can also benefit fibromyalgia. Um, things like yoga and qigong have shown benefits for patients with fibromyalgia. Um, I was trying to kind of differentiate and see what qigong is, but I, I found that it's a form of tai chi um, with a little bit different... Um, I guess, movements and modalities of thinking towards the, the reasons for the movements. Um, so things like that where there's a mind-body association can really benefit patients with fibromyalgia. And there's actually a large study looking at um, yoga and fibromyalgia. So they, they came up with this yoga awareness program for fibromyalgia where it was just kind of a low-impact um, yoga regimen where it was a lot of meditative processes in the yoga session as well as kind of low-impact poses, not the strenuous you know, crow poses and things that people do. Um, they looked at results three months later. Um, basically, they, they divided women in two groups. Um, and actually, that's a little typo there. So one group went and did the yoga, and then 12 weeks later, not two weeks later, um, the second group of women went and did the yoga. Um, they found that there was an overall improvement in, in this um, study measure they looked at. It was the fibromyalgia impact questionnaire revised version. Um, and they basically said that the more people practice yoga, the more benefit they got out of it. Um, Other things, uh, what uh, people term um, balneotherapy, I don't know if people are familiar with that term, but basically kind of spa-like treatments that people get, uh, which which is very common in other countries like Germany and Israel, where you have things like... um, mineral water immersion into different types of pools and things like that. Um, They found that those types of things can benefit pain. It can improve the quality of life for patients with fibromyalgia, Um, but there definitely needs to be more follow-up for those types of um, therapies. And then acupuncture is very commonly prescribed for uh, fibromyalgia as well, Um, it's placing these very very small gauge needles into the body um and if you were at my earlier talk earlier this morning i talked about some of the meridians and how um, they develop all these points over thousands and thousands of years and acupuncture is meant to be practiced with needles placed in specific points with specific combinations um but a lot of the research has shown um, For example, this Cochrane Review, which is a pretty large study. They looked at nine studies, um, almost 400 patients. There's low to moderate evidence that acupuncture improves the pain and stiffness in fibromyalgia. But the thing that I wanted to mention is that um, there's moderate evidence that it doesn't necessarily matter where the points are that you choose for acupuncture. And then after my last talk, after I said all this for some of my other therapies, um, I had someone come up to me and say, you know, I don't think you should downplay acupuncture or, or sham acupuncture because it really does help. So I, I don't mean to do that at all, but this is just kind of some of the data that comes out saying that um, sham acupuncture, it doesn't matter where you place the needles per se, but it does give some benefit for patients. So I grew up getting acupuncture done and I do practice acupuncture myself, so I don't want to downplay it at all. But um, there's evidence showing that it doesn't really matter necessarily where, where you place the needle. The other thing for fibromyalgia uh, patients is they commonly complain of trigger points, um, which are just tender spots in the muscles. And oftentimes, offering trigger point injections is something that we offer. Um, but what is the evidence-based um, studies and things that are out there for trigger point injections? So there, I was able to find a study looking at um, the treatment of fibromyalgia with trigger point injections. Um, they used bupivacaine versus um, a placebo-like injection, which means that uh, they actually didn't go into the trigger point, or when you palpate the muscle, um, you can often feel the trigger points in the muscle. So they didn't actually go into those points. They went to points kind of around those areas. Um, they found that both groups had improvement of their fibromyalgia symptoms, um, but in the, the trigger point group, there was less pain medicine consumption in that group. So something about placing the trigger points into the actual trigger points in the muscles um, decreased their need to to require some of these pain medicines. Um, And it is very common for fibromyalgia patients to have a lot of trigger points, especially in their neck area and their trapezius muscles, and that's commonly where the trigger points are done. Um, The other thing for fibromyalgia patients is massage therapy. And there is an actual study looking at massage therapy for fibromyalgia. Um, it was a s- systematic review, meta-analysis for randomized control trials, um, looking at about 400 patients who got massage therapy for about five weeks. Uh, there, they show that there was an improvement in pain, anxiety, and depression. Um, however, it didn't really change sleep that much. If you were here earlier this morning, we talked a lot about sleep and how that affects pain Um, So they found that massage therapy didn't necessarily improve sleep, um, but there needs to be more studies to kind of come up with long-term effects of massage therapy. But I'm sure all of us would not mind getting massage um, and that would benefit all of us. Yeah, question? Yeah, so I didn't actually see anything specifically for the type of uh, massage or muscle release that they are doing. Um, uh, it didn't really go into that. Yeah. And then things like this, um, where you think of futuristic therapies and things that they used in Star Trek, um, is that really a reality? And I often have patients that come into the, to our office and ask me what the latest things are for the treatment of fibromyalgia. Um, and there are actually things in the pipeline that are sort of related to this type of therapy. Um, there are things like transcranial stimulation and transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is just um, neurostimulation at the, level, at, at the level of the brain um, where they place an anode over the primary motor cortex of the brain and send um, an electrical stimulation or current through there. And as uh, Dr. Badiola was kind of alluding to, there are specific changes that occur in the brain in fibromyalgia patients. There's um, decreased blood flow to certain areas, to the thalamus, caudate nucleus, um, pontine tegmentum. And they found that doing these direct stimulations with uh, this transcranial therapy, um, they showed improvement of pain and their quality of life at three weeks. So, um, like I said, it's still kind of in, their, in the experimental stages and it's not um, fully out there for everyone to use. But there is some promise that sh- things like this can sometimes help with fibromyalgia type pain. Uh, for transmagnetic stimulation, um, there was another study showing that prefrontal cortex stimulation versus sham, so they didn't necessarily go at the prefrontal cortex, they did it somewhere else in the brain. Um, it showed significant improvements of their depression symptoms in fibromyalgia patients. I'm going to move on to interstitial cystitis, um, which is another functional pain syndrome that we see very often. Um, A common thing that patients get with uh, interstitial cystitis is hydrodistension, um, basically filling the bladder with a substance and kind of holding it there so that the bladder is distended. Um, people use variable pressures and durations for that. Um, can it really help with pain? They think that there might be a disruption of their sensory nerve inputs from the bladder wall, which can decrease some of the the pain symptoms from IC with that. But kind of again, because there's such variation in how um, people do it, and I guess mostly urologists, um, depending on how high of a pressure they induced into the bladder or how long they keep it. Sometimes it can worsen the pain, especially if there's damage to the bladder wall if you do it for too long or too high of pressures.
0: Um,
2: DMSO is also very commonly used. And I thought just some of the history behind DMSO was a little bit interesting. It was discovered in the mid to late 19th century, um, originally used as an industrial solvent um, and then later on used for things like cell cultures and things like that to help protect cells from, from freezing. Um, and then this Dr. Stanley Jacob used it for other properties. Um, he found that it had some anti-inflammatory properties, and then in the late 1990s, I think, the FDA approved it for the use of, um, for, uh, for the use of uh, interstitial cystitis and in the treatment of bladder distension for, for IC. Um, So people can get bladder installations of DMSO. It's injected through a catheter, usually held in the bladder for about 20 minutes. You can get weekly treatments for six to eight weeks. Um, And there's a study that showed that getting bladder installations with DMSO can significantly reduce pain in patients with IC and reduce the urinary frequency symptoms that people have with IC. There's also a cocktail with heparin, bicarb, and lidocaine that people instill into the bladder. Um, They think that it may have properties which help repair the lining of the bladder, so sometimes that's used instead. Um, Botox has also been more commonly used, um, injecting Botox into the detrusor muscle of the bladder to help relieve some of the frequency issues from I.C. Um, but with that, there might be unopposed smooth muscle contraction, which may lead to urinary retention. Um, but some observational studies show that doing Botox injections can improve the symptoms with IC. And like I said, it's mainly the urinary frequency symptoms. Another um, interventional modality that you could, that's being used for IC is a, a sacral nerve stimulator. Um, Also known as InterStim, I think um, it's made mainly by uh, Medtronic, and they call it uh, an InterStim. It was FDA-approved for urinary frequency and urgency, so not necessarily for IC specifically, but mainly for the symptoms of IC. Um, It's actually placed along the S3 nerve root um, in the sacrum. And then the neuromodulation that occurs through these um, stimulators is, is thought to cause afferent inhibition, um, as well as um, decrease some of the efferent modulation. So a, a lot of things that Dr. Bediolo was talking about with kind of um, excitatory upregulation going into the into the central nervous system and and the efferent modulation coming down. Um, spinal, these uh, modu- these interstim modulators are thought to. Affect those processing symptoms. There's a, a study that came out looking at this interstim. In, um, patients who tried other types of therapy and were refractory to treatment, um, they they underwent a a uh, interstim in procedure. It was about 25 patients. Um, the results showed that patients can get significant relief from their pelvic pain, um, and it can help with a lot of the uh, the voiding symptoms of I.C. And then, moving on to vulvodynia, um, there aren't. Yes. Yep.
3: Along the line of interest, are you familiar with using posterior tibial
1: nerve stimulation, which is much less invasive? For this, and you use the posterior tibial nerve, which is the end root, right on the medial aspect of the ankle, to stimulate. And it's the same idea, but
2: much less expensive. Right. Yeah, I, I actually haven't heard uh, much about that. It has growing evidence, and has a lot of evidence for frequency. Yeah. yeah, so I guess a lot of our urology and uh, ob colleagues are, are doing those types of procedures for IC. Um, for vulvodynia, um, there, there are some procedures that are available to, to perform for patients with vulvodynia, but it's pretty hard to treat um, a lot of the symptoms, both vulvodynia. Um, so there are a wide range of procedures, but none of them are that great for the, for treating the symptoms of vulvodynia. Um, things like a caudal epidural injection, where you place um, an epidural needle into the caudal space through the sacrococcygeal ligament um, and injecting medicine through there, or doing a transvaginal pudendal block, and that's done more by our OBGYN gyn colleagues. Um, And lastly, doing a a transperineal vestibular infiltration can sometimes help with some of the symptoms related to vulvodynia. I I was able to find this one study on um, kind of interventions looking at vulvodynia. Um, A small study, but 27 women got uh, five treatment sessions of these injections kind of in a series. So they all got um, a local injection of uh, a caudal injection, a transvaginal pudendal block, a transperineal vestibular infiltration. They got all those injections done. Um, their kind of endpoint parameters were a McGill pain questionnaire. Um, they used a vulvagisiometer. Um, and honestly, I didn't know what that was, so I had to Google it, but <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it basically kind of tests the pain pressure around the vulva. Um, and then they looked at female sexual functioning. And all of these showed improvement after people got a series of these injections. And then lastly, kind of um, another option that's available for vulvodynia. Sometimes it's doing uh, ganglion impar block. Um, so the ganglion impar, as you may know, is just the terminus of your sympathetic chain, and it kind of um, resides in the anterior portion of your coccyx. So going through this sacrococcygeal ligament and injecting a little bit of dye to make sure that the medicine spreads anterior to your coccyx and behind your rectum to kind of get to your ganglion impar. Sometimes that can help reduce some of the symptoms related to to vulvodynia. Um, There was actually one study as well, a little bit older, from 2007, looking at this ganglion impar block approach. Um, It was 16 patients. They didn't necessarily have vulvodynia, but they had more pelvic-related pain um, they were followed for about two months, and they found that uh, their VAS scores at least were, were significantly reduced at eight months after getting these ganglion impar blocks. And then finally for uh, irritable bowel syndrome, um, as you may know, it's a tough condition to treat for patients who have IBS. Um, and when you look at the differential diagnosis for abdominal pain, it's a huge long list And then when you look at the innervation of the abdomen and all the organs in in the abdomen, it's very complex as well. Um, So all that just to say that there isn't actually a good intervention or a a single nerve block or anything that you can do for patients with IBS. Um, So like I said, there's no specific targets that you would look for in terms of a nerve block. Um, And the mainstay of treatment for IBS is medical management, and I think my colleague Dr. Presbukowski is going to talk about that next.
3: All right, thanks, Pete. So, as we all know, there's uh, you know really not any tried and true method for treating these patients. So, a lot of it, you know, my whole thing is you want to do no harm, and especially when you're selecting medications for these functional pain syndromes, you really want to be wary of what the side effect profile is, the age of your patient, and um, any comorbidities they have, because obviously you don't want to be um, causing any more harm when you're putting them on a lot of these medications. So I'll address each uh, particular disease and kind of go over um, what is FDA approved for treatment for that disease state, maybe non-FDA approved. Um, most of the medications I'll talk about, there is some pretty good data for fibromyalgia in medications, and there are some FDA-approved drugs. But definitely for um, vulvodynia, interstitial cystitis, this is something we um, see, used to see, still see a lot. I saw a lot when I worked at Penn, and it's very difficult to treat. You have these patients coming in. They've been seen by world-renowned specialists and then you know urology colleagues of ours obstetricians, gynecologists, uh, gastroenterologists, and then they send them our way and say, everything's negative, the workup's good, it's uh, your, turn to, your, your turn to treat. Um, so like I said, do no harm. As we all know, you know I, I think everyone here knows opioids, high doses, especially for these functional pain syndromes, um, really would be your last, last resort um, for treatment with, with medication management. So irritable bowel syndrome, it seems like we're being inundated over the last couple months with medications to help patients with constipation. Um, We see commercials for the snail. I know everyone watched the Super Bowl this year, saw the commercial for the snail. Everyone came back in the next week in my practice, I want that drug. that has the snail on it. What's it for? What's it for? So that's Movantik. But um, recently, too, I watch ABC News. I like David Muir. Um, They've been doing a lot of advertisement recently um, with new medications specifically targeting um, IBS for patients. The newest one out there is, anyone know what this drug is? Seen commercials for it? Rifaximin. Yeah, r- r- Rifaximin. So it's an antibiotic, which is actually showing some good, good uh, relief in the IBS um, patient population. So when you talk about IBS, I know I'm a board-certified anesthesia pain doctor. There's all these different types of IBS that the gastro guys know all about. There's IBS with constipation, without constipation, with frequency, with uh, urgency, you know, with watery diarrhea, Um, so kind of, you know, I'm just gonna talk about IBS in general. And when it comes down to it, what you're really doing is symptom management. You're not giving a medication that's gonna cure their IBS. You're not gonna be able to do a procedure that's gonna cure their IBS. So with these, you know, functional pain syndromes, like Marty said this morning, it's a lifelong disease. It's like diabetes, it's like COPD. You're gonna have your good days and bad days and a lot of it is about symptom management. So first category I'll talk about for IBS are the antibiotics. Um, what they do is they prevent overgrowth of bacteria in the gut. So rifaximin is the new one that's being advertised um, on a national scale, and you'll see commercials for also known as zyvaxin. So it's a, a derivative of rifampin, which we used to, used to treat TB, and, uh, you know, it binds to, basically stops bacterial synthesis in the gut. You remember from med school, there's transcription, RNA, DNA, proteins made. Um, It it prevents protein from being made by binding to this uh, RNA uh, polymerase. And it results in inhibition of bacterial synthesis. Um, Next one I'll talk about is anticholinergics. Um, They can really help with um, patients with IBS that complain of a lot of muscle spasm in their abdomen um, chronically feeling like they have to go to the bathroom. When they go to the bathroom, sometimes it's episodic. It goes away before they have a bowel movement. Um, and medications that are most commonly used, or is probably the, the most well-known. Um, and Levzin is the second common. But you know, like I said, with anticholinergics, you want to be careful with elderly patients, patients with a cardiac history, um, as these medications can sometimes affect the QT interval and uh, cause hypotension. Next category is antidiarrheal. So these are really the medications for your patients with IBS with more diarrhea as a component of the pain complaint. Um, These act directly on the both circular and the longitudinal muscles in our small and large intestine um, through peripheral mu opioid receptors. So what they're doing is basically inhibiting peristalsis. There's more time for the stool in the colon to reabsorb water back into the body. So it kind of helps you know, for patients that are having transit that's very, very quick and going through the bowels. Imodium um, is a common one I use. Um, I've n- heard of this, never used it, um, is Lamodil. Um, I'm just more experienced using Imodium, and it's easy to get over the counter. So that's why I tend to stick to um, for patients that have diarrhea with their IBS. Next group of medications after the anticholinergic, antidiarrheals, and the antibiotics would be the tricyclics, the TCAs, We've kind of hit this home with our lecture this morning too, so I'm not gonna kind of go into too much detail here, that we all know they have antidepressant and analgesic properties. Their use is still off-label for IBS. Um, in my opinion, still a better option than opioids. Um, they may help treat the symptoms of IBS, the urgency, um, the spasm people um, report, and it, there's small reports that actually increases pain threshold in the gut. Um, and much like the uh, anti-diarrheals, they prolong the the oral to sequel transit time, allowing more water to be reabsorbed in the gut so there's less um, diarrhea. Imipramine and Elavil. Elavil's become my go-to just because I have a lot more experience prescribing it and I'm pretty good with the, the dose titration of that going upwards. Bulking agents, uh, so these are your over-the-counters, your Metamucils, your fibricons, um, things that are very easily taken with a glass of water, uh, easily tolerated by a majority of people, too. You really don't have any issues in terms of um, cost with these types of medications. Um, what they are, cellulose derivatives that dissolve or swell in the intestine acting like a bulking agent, and they can form gel-like substances that help stimulate, move things along in the gut. Um, and these may help the patients who have IBS with constipation rather than that other category of patients that have IBS with uh, diarrhea. Two common ones are, are Tr- Citrucel, Metamucil, there's Fibrocon, there's a, a, a boatload of these types of medications out there now. So miscellaneous ametisa, I've been actually using a lot more ametisa, more for opioid-induced constipation, but it does have FDA approval for IBS. So... You know, when I'm first treating patients, I try to stick to FDA approved medications because, you know, if you have the stamp of the approval of the gov- government, what could go wrong, right? It's got to be a good medication, it's got to work. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, so, what ametes is, it's a chloride channel activator. So, basically, um, it inc- in, uh, submits chloride ions into the intestinal aluminum. Wherever chloride goes, water follows. So it helps increase both water and sodium um, flow into stool to help ki- keep things moving along. Um, any questions about IBS medications, symptom management? Do we have any gastroenterologists in here? By the way, no. Great. <laughs> Fibromyalgia. Uh, so. Widespread pain, agnostic explained a little bit earlier. Fatigue, stiffness, poor sleep, depression, anxiety, cognitive issues. What Dr. Teedle told me, and what I found out in my own practice too, you can usually tell patients have fibromyalgia. At the end of the encounter, you kind of feel depressed, run down, like you just got hit by a Mack truck. So they kind of go into your clinic and they, kind of, they put that aura out around them. Um, so that might help you diagnose. You know, Someone was asking earlier, how do you diagnose it? There's 11 out of 18 points that are um, palpable. So typically, um, in my experience, it's uh, Caucasian females between the ages of 30 to 50. Um, if I have enough time, I try to get into a good psychosocial history going into psychological stressors if there's anything at home going on um, that could be triggering um, the, the uh, symptoms they're having. So there's a couple FDA-approved drugs for fibromyalgia. Does anyone know what they are? And, yep, and Lyrica. So, Like I said, you have the stamp of approval of the government, so they gotta work. They gotta do well for the patients. Now I kind of use this as a bargaining chip sometimes. Um, So Lyrica, Cymbalta, and Sevilla are uh, the three FDA approved medications for chronic widespread pain. All other medications are non-FDA approved. Um, So I'll tell patients, you know, most patients come to me sometimes having been on opioids for fibromyalgia and I try to explain to them the the really multimodal approach There's no injection that's gonna get you better. It's really exercise, seeing people like Marty for CBT, aquatic therapy, Um, and I I really try to stick to just the FDA-approved drugs for for treatment of these patients in my clinic. So TCA's, off-label use, a lot of studies in the 80s, a lot of studies in the 90s for patients with widespread pain. Um, They inhibit serotonin, norepi, and spinal neurons, among other things. So basically, in my opinion, TCA's kind of hit every receptor. They can be sedative because they hit histamine receptor. Um, they affect norepi, noradrenaline, um, serotonin, some mu receptor inhibition as well. Um, these act on the descending pain pathways for their analgesic effect. And the doses needed for pain relief are actually much lower than the doses that would be used for antidepressant relief, which most of these doses for antidepressants were used in the 70s and 80s. Amitriptyline, Elavil, it's my go-to. It's, Most well-studied for me, it's a little bit more easily tolerated. I usually start at night, increase the dose after two weeks, and go from there. Most common side effect for me with my patient population is sedation or somnolence. So a lot of these types of medications I'm starting at night to make sure they're tolerated before I start dose escalations. Nortriptyline or Pamilor is is another uh, tried and true TCA for fibromyalgia. Imipramine, I don't have as much use, but it is out there. People are using it. So SSRI, so SSRI is really the bio-cycle social mon, uh, module with these patients with fibromyalgia. You want to make sure you're treating mood, treating sleep like Marty had mentioned earlier, and treating their pain. So patients that walk in and, you know, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I can tell they're depressed. You know, I'll do my, my, my screening, loss, appetite, poor sleep, uh, loss of interest and in pleasurable activities. When they're hitting all those things, I'll consider starting an SSRI rather than an SNRI like Cymbalta. Um, they're typically better tolerated in t- the TCAs due to less anticholinergic effects. They do increase serotonin levels in the spinal cord and also work on descending inhibitory pain pathways. Um, and like I said, they may help these patients have more of depressive symptoms as a main component of their pain experience with fibromyalgia. Prozac and uh, Paxor, or, or some SSRIs, select is another one. So SNRIs, Cymbalta, uh, Diloxetine is probably the most well-studied. Also, um, affecting descending inhibitory pain pathways. There's different affinities for the serotonin norepinephrine receptors or transporters with Effexor, Fenlifaxine, Cymbalta, and Sevilla in that order having greater affinity for those receptors. Deloxetine has four RCTs showing effectiveness, dosing Usually between 60 to 120 milligrams a day is effective. When you push the dose above 120 milligrams, there's hardly any more pain relief, and the side effect profile goes through the roof. Um, there's no effect with 20 milligrams a day, and that's usually not my starting dose personally. I'm usually starting 60 milligrams a day and going from there. And like I said, it's FDA approved for uh, fibromyalgia pain. Opioids, very hesitant to start in this patient population. If I am, I'd consider Tramadol. Um, That was back in June. I've actually started using buprenorphine, Butrans patch, low dose, five mics, and seeing some decent results with it. Pain reduction about 20 to 30%, which I tell patients anyway, if I'm starting opioids, I'm gonna give you a medication that's gonna lower your pain from a 10 out of 10 to an eight out of 10, you're gonna get constipated. There's a risk of death, depression, addiction, tolerance. Would you wanna take that medication? I don't tell them what it is. I give them the choice. Most people say, no, I'd be crazy to take that. And I say, well, that's what Percocet does. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I want it then. <laughs> but actually, actually, low-dose Butrans I've been, I've been seeing in my clinic um, work pretty well for patients with chronic, chronic widespread pain, and I think they've used potentials less because it's a once-weekly patch. So alpha-2-delta ligands, uh, gabapentin, your gabapentinoids, Horizont, pregabalin, Lyrica, um, tried and true. Or gabapentin, well, pre-gabalin's FDA approved for fibro. Uh, the alpha-2-delta receptor, as we know, all know, it's a voltage-gated calcium channel. Um, emits less calcium. Basically, downstream, what happens? You have less inflammatory mediators going around the body. Substance P, glutamate, norepinephrine. Miscellaneous. So uh, Sean Mackey out in Stanford studied using low-dose naltrexone for patients with fibromyalgia. Um, So they took uh, 31 women with fibromyalgia. It was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Um, Participants received 4.5 milligrams of oral Narcan daily, Um, and they followed these patients to see if their pain scores improved. What did they find? They found that low-dose naltrexone was associated with improved general satisfaction with life. That's great, happy with life. Um, And it actually showed improved mood, but not improved fatigue or sleep. 32% of the um, participants met the response in terms of a a decrease in pain score um, during low-dose therapy as contrasted with 11% in the placebo group. So this is kind of, you know, there are people out there who are thinking about the model of fibromyalgia, how is it really occurring, what is going on, Ignacio had mentioned earlier in these fibromyalgia patients, they do have an upregulation of kind of endogenous opioids. So maybe narcan or naltrexone in low doses down the road could be an option. But who knows? A lot of studies are still being done. What was the dose they used on the naltrexone? 4.5 milligrams. Daily for um, it was a two week two week study that they had them on. So interstitial cystitis. Does anyone here know what the drug of choice for IC is, your go to drug? There isn't one, yeah. So it's, it's, all, it's all, all off-label use, um, Elmeron. So a lot of these patients who I would see when I was faculty at Penn um, had so the bladder installations still had chronic pain. A lot of the procedures I were doing, like pudendal nerve blocks are really off-label use. Patients were paying cash for them. There's no good studies for interventional management. There's really Not a lot of good options for medication management as well, unfortunately. So it's very difficult to treat pharmacologically. Avoid use of opioids if possible. There's no, obviously no literature to support the use for interstitial cystitis. Symptom management is key. Um, There's few, if any, RCTs for meds um, for patients with IC. Um, There's pent. What kind of medication, sir? Dramamine? No. No, I've heard patients get methylene blue for this, too. Methylene blue is part of that separation. You can't get the one that has the methylene blue. What do you Yeah. What is more than Physical therapy? So I rely heavily on physical therapists that have... Um, a, made a career in pelvic floor dysfunction and I make it a habit of sending these patients to people like Marty. Because when there's, yeah, n- not anymore. He took that out of his practice. But when these patients are really difficult to treat with medications and I'm, I really want to avoid doing harm and giving them medication that could lead to addiction and death is when I really rely on people who, who know pelvic floor dysfunction and do it every day and aren't afraid to do it and people like Marty for the CBT aspect of things. So, um, pendicin polysulfurate, poly, excuse me, polysulfate sodium its a low molecular weight heparanoid uh, that adheres to the bladder wall mucosa. So this is also instilled in the bladder um, through my uh, urology colleagues, where it acts as a buffer to pr- pr- protect the surface of the bladder from irritating substances in the urine. Um, but the risks and benefits of continued use beyond six months are unknown. There are some studies that show a small amount of decreased pain um, within a six-month treatment period for IC. So TCA's amitriptyline, I did find one study. It was a RCT in a journal of urology. This was done back in 2004. Basically what it showed, uh, 44 women, 6 men randomized to uh, amitriptyline versus placebo, um, treated for four months with a self-titration protocol. And what they found was that amitriptyline patients' um, mean symptom scores. They have this IC symptom index um, that the Euroguides use um, and they saw a decrease in their scores on patients who are on amitriptyline compared to placebo. Anticholinergics you can use to treat the um, frequency component of IC. Um, However, you have to be careful because they can um, impair bladder emptying and if you impair uh, bladder emptying in a subset of patients, uh, it actually can increase their pelvic pain. And tolterodine and oxybutin are two of the medications that are used as anticholinergics to treat IC. So vulvodynia, really, um, it's evidence, it, it's limited, it's clinical experience, there's descriptive studies, case reports, um, expert committees, few RCTs. Um, I found one for Botox for management of vulvodynia seems like Botox is in vogue right now, PRP's in vogue right now. I'm gonna talk about that tomorrow. And what they found is patients who received 20 to 40 units of intradermal um, Botox actually had less pain in their levator anti-muscles, basically more, less pelvic pain. Um, but uh, it's nothing I've never, uh, it's, I've never used it personally, Botox for vulvodynia. I don't have a device to monitor vulvar pain, the, fitness monitor, whatever it was, Peter. So um, it's very low on my, my amount of patients I treat with, with this disease now. Gabapentin, um, vitamin G, we call it at Penn, um, can be used to, to treat uh, vulvodynia. Um, there's 152 patients in this study. Uh, 98 patients were treated with gabapentin and had at least 80% resolution of their symptoms during the study period. Um, so gabapentin, I think most of us know what the side effect profile is. Pretty well tolerated, except in elderly. So this one they're using. Uh, so there's about 2,400 milligrams a day, if I remember from reading the study. This is just the uh, the IMDb stuff I printed out. It was about 18, 18 to 2,400 milligrams. They didn't push it up to a 3,600 milligram dose. So medication management for all these functional pain syndromes. There's pretty decent data, I would say, on fibromyalgia and IBS. IBS, you just want to kind of, it's its all symptom treatment for both. IBS, you want to be wary of whether it's IBS with or without constipation, with or without diarrhea, and I'll determine kind of treatment strategy for you. I see in There's still much, much yet to be learned. I still rely a lot on my colleagues who are in urology or, or gynecology to, to really do as much as they can before they kind of Say, hey, I've given it my best shot and I'm sending them over to you. Um, You wanna be wary of side effects like anything. You wanna do no harm. Um, You don't wanna be causing orthostatic hypotension and patients passing out, hitting their head. Um, TCAs, SSRIs, SNRIs, neuropathic agents, we pretty much all know the mechanism of action now, um, side effect profiles. So you wanna do no harm. Um, Opioids, if you're gonna use them, Tramadol um, because you get a little bit of serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibition and with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Marty, but first I'll take some questions. Did you see
1: anything on glucosamine for the baldadine? I've
3: had a couple patients that used it As an oral supplement? As just to help pain. you try to a doesn't work, if they try to, have it
2: takes a little while, but if they go off, with about
3: three or four days. Yeah, I haven't read anything about it. The big thing now in Philadelphia where I practice is patients are drinking cherry juice, and they're saying that is helping with their chronic pains. So, um, you know, no harm, no foul. You know, glucosamine's pretty well tolerated. You're not going to have a lot of side effects. You can't abuse it. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. So, so. So the question was: Is there any evidence for superior hypogastric nerve blocks for interstitial cystitis? Um, there's case reports. There's, um, I'm trying to think, there's reviews I've read. There's no randomized prospective studies. My own personal experience, I've done superior hypogastric plexus blocks and I'll tell the patients, you know, maybe one out of four patients will get some relief. I've done pudendal nerve blocks. Um, same thing, you know, I'll give it my best shot, but we're really getting off label with, with these interventions. So ganglion impar for IC, Peter had mentioned. Um, personally, I've never, I've only, I only do it for rectal cancer pain. Um, my experience is I just haven't seen it work or I've had patients come to my clinic saying I have IC. I was at Drexel, I was at Jefferson, they were doing ganglion impar blocks, they work. you know. Can you do them for me? Um,
0: Right. In,
2: um, you know, so yeah. Have some
1: level of success combining Yeah, it, it sense to combine those, um, those blocks, because they the,
2: the, the lower abdominal organs like in the pelvis. Like the but, dog, but like the
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean speaking of comorbid conditions, I think Marty's gonna address this. A lot of these functional pain syndromes, sleep disorder, depression, um, they all go hand in hand. And you know we talked about that holy trinity this morning. If you're not, you don't just want to treat the pain. You want to treat the sleep. You want to treat the mood. So we're going to let uh, hand this over to Marty here and let him get into that. Thank you.
0: So the typical patient you see with fibromyalgia gives you this history, uh, or I ask the history. Um, so when did you start having these symptoms? That was about nine years ago. I always ask this question, what was going on in your life at that moment? They'll say, well, I don't know, I was going through a divorce, or I had a kid, or there was something stressful going on, and then I started feeling sick and flu-like symptoms, and it kind of progressed into this widespread body pain, right? Well, think about how these talks all fit together, the, the neurophysiology of fibromyalgia, where there's a genetic predisposition but there's this trigger of stress that sort of sets it off. We know this in all kinds of medical conditions, right? A predisposition, and then there's some type of stress. So when you're giving a history of these patients, think about those traumas. We've done a real disservice. Everyone remember Descartes, the philosopher? Thank God he's dead, because he divided the mind and body. The bo- he, I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> he divided the mind and body and the body was this machine that functioned and malfunctioned, and the mind was just this passive observer. And again, we still practice health care like this, right? So when we see a fibromyalgia patient, oh, the F word, you know, that they roll their eyes, oh, it can't hurt everywhere, and you have IBS, and you have this and that, and we start to divide the mind and body and say, well, this must be a psychiatric problem. But when we started getting more data about the neurophysiology, how these things develop in functional pain syndromes, Vanderbilt, they, they, uh, REM, REM suppressed medical students, they all develop widespread pain. That there's this interconnection that exists and there's, there's power in looking at the whole and treating it as a whole. So I think a lot of times these patients are, I think chronic pain patients are vilified to start with. But when we start having this widespread pain, they're really treated like they're psychiatric patients, and they're not. And the more we know about functional MRIs in the brain, if you've ever read some of the works of looking at someone who has no pain, acute pain, and chronic pain and taking functional MRIs, their brains change. That is the hallmark of a disease, is a structural, functional change. So again, I think we have to kind of change our mentality here and look at the whole person. When we look at people who have persistent pain, Lots of bad things happen, right? You have sleep disturbance, which we'll be talking about tomorrow, depression, anxiety in a subgroup of people, medication misuse, abuse, secondary medical problems. They, start, they stop functioning. What happens to them? They gain weight. They get obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, diabetes. You know, lots of bad things happen. Uh, functional disabilities and cognitive distortions. If you look at the mind body medicine, it really is an inner intersection of biological factors, which is toxins, you know exposure, injuries, genetics, psychological factors, what you think and believe in your attitudes and the environment you live in and treating that whole is so critical. So, what is traditional medicine it 's the three legged stool this is by Herbert Benson up in at the Mind Body Institute in, uh, in Boston. So we have pharmaceuticals, thank you, Dr. Przbikowski. We have procedures, uh, surgery and procedures, Dr. Yee. And we have what people can do for themselves. This third leg of our health care delivery system has atrophied so that we have a system that is out of control and, and in balance. We never help people help themselves. People follow the H sign to the hospital and say, you're going to take care of me, right? You're going to do this for me. This people, what people can do for themselves is incredibly powerful and we never ever or typically don't emphasize it. So if we look at the, at the history of medicine, it was sustained for hundreds of years by this placebo effect, an inactive nonspecific substance used in lieu of an active specific substance. Now I picked this picture because we all live in Philadelphia and this is Abigail Adams, right? This is Benjamin Rush, the father of psychiatry who is their family physician And every July and August when they were in Philadelphia for the Continental Congress, um, people would get really ill. And the theory was is that there was some kind of lunar event and there was too much blood. So that Benjamin Rush, Dr. Rush, would come to the Adams' house and bloodlet her every day, almost killed her all the time. So what do you think happens in July and August in Philadelphia? Now, Philadelphia was also swamps everywhere. What happened? What's that? Yellow fever, lots of things. It wasn't a lunar event. But placebo effects kind of sustained medicine in lots of ways. And so the placebo effect counts on three components. The belief of the patient, the belief of the physician, the healer, the practitioner, and the relationship between the the provider and the patient. What has happened in mechanized medicine today? You have less time for an interaction. How many people are in primary care, right? See more patients, do your epic, do your, you know, primary care docs are spending two or three hours at the end of the day just doing paperwork on things. Oh, and by the way, make sure your patients are satisfied. A lot of conflict there, right? So now we don't have that relationship with our patients anymore, which is one of the most powerful things that you have in your arsenal to help people with this mind-body interaction. So I think the placebo effect is really interesting. What happened in the, in the history of medicine is we had this medical revolution, right? So we we discovered toxins and antitoxins. Everyone thinks penicillin's been around for a thousand years. It's not. So how do we treat people that had even simpler complex pneumonia? We would isolate them in wards, and either they lived or they didn't live, right? We we managed their symptoms. Penicillin came on the market, and you didn't care if your if your doctor was the biggest tool you ever met. You took the pill, you got better. And this placebo effect, that relationship started to erode. Again, we became more mechanical in our approach. But many studies still show that up to 70% of people who take placebos improve across a wide variety of physical ailments. A placebo effect is not a, a non-effect. It's very powerful, but something else is happening in the brain, the spirit, that's changing that patient. So what happened was the birth of mind-body medicine, 1979. The Surgeon General at the time said, there are 10 major risk factors for the majority of disability and death in our country. How many of those were under behavioral control? Five, six, eight, right? Smoking, obesity, right? Wearing a helmet, wearing a seatbelt. Most of these behaviors were the highest risk factors for disease and disability. So what happened is, we have this system right now, which is traditional medical care is the should statements, and I always say don't should on yourself. So your doctor comes in and says, "Uh, you know here, you know, you shouldn't smoke, you're gonna die. You're gonna, bad things are gonna happen. I've never had a patient, when you told them what they should do, said, oh my God, I thought smoking was good for me. I will stop right away. But immediately, we're handing them the Nicoderm patch, which are really hard to keep lit. But we have should statements. You shouldn't smoke, you should lose weight, you should exercise. Has anyone had anyone change a behavior because of that? Ever? They look at you and said, are you a moron? I came here because I got this thing behind my knee. I know smoking's bad for me. The mind-body approach is how to, not should. How do you get people to change behavior to improve their health and their dealing with disease and coping with disease? That is the essence of a mind-body approach. Now shifting to pain, the, the relieving pain in America, the IOM report of 2011, really said this succinctly. We believe pain arises in the nervous system, but represents a complex evolving interplay of biological, behavioral, environmental, and societal factors. it's this mind, body, social kind of interaction that occurs. And if you look at it sort of more specifically, that we have a physiological stimulus, an oseosceptive, neuropathic, everything is filtered through this biopsychosocial context. And what results is the experience of pain. You ever had patients that had multiple surgeries, their back looks like a roadmap to Rhode Island, they had uh, lots of problems, they have minimal pain, right? And you're going like, why isn't this person having more pain? Other people who have a normal examination, um, they have sort of nondescript back pain and they're totally immobilized. It's not just one is weak and stronger, something different is happening right here in this sphere, in this biopsychosocial context. This is where the power is, particularly in functional pain syndromes. So the biopsychosocial approach to chronic pain management is very clear. It is a comprehensive approach emphasizing cognitive behavioral therapy, a graded restorative exercise program, and appropriate medication management. Again, we talked about the holy trinity this morning, sleep, mood, pain have to treat all of these. And it's the combination of these three have the best outcome studies, no no offense to my interventional guys here, but they have the best outcome, the lowest iatrogenic complications, and they're cost effective. So what does a biopsychosocial treatment program look like for a functional pain syndrome? So it's cognitive behavioral therapy, functional restoration, evidence-based rational pharmacotherapy, social support, which is really critical, and what we talked about if you were here this morning, graded motor imagery. If you could put together the best program for functional pain syndromes, this would be it, if you had the money and the access. So let's take a minute and look at, at cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance commitment therapy. So this is, cognitive behavioral therapy is very, very clear. Pain patients do two things. They catastrophize, which is, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, the pain's gonna get worse, I'll never be able to handle it, I will die from this pain. That's catastrophizing and kinesiophobia, which is fear of movement. So when you catastrophize and you don't move, what happens to your pain? It gets worse. You get deconditioned, more pain, more catastrophizing, more depression, more anxiety, more disability. And the whole objective of cognitive behavioral therapy is to have the patient walk them through this process of reconceptualizing their pain and their relationship to their pain and getting them to go from being reactive to the pain, reactive to their life, to proactive with their life. And you use specific kind of interventions: relaxation therapy, mindfulness meditation, uh, stress uh, uh, reduction uh, techniques, um, you know, cognitive restructuring, cognitive therapy, and you have skill uh, consolidation, rehearsal, and then you kind of practice it in a relapse training. Very straightforward. This is one study that was done: as a Cochrane review looking at cognitive behavioral therapy for fibromyalgia. So basically, they looked at the effectiveness of CBT for fibromyalgia. They had 23 studies that met inclusion criteria as being uh, moderate to, to uh, superior. A T- uh, Total of about 2,000 patients. CBT was superior to controls in pain reduction, reducing negative mood, and reducing disability, both at the end of treatment and at six-month follow-up. Pretty impressive, you know, that there was really a significant shift in their disability. What do we target in pain management? Do we target pain really? Not really. We target mood and function. Because pain is this elusive thing. We even got rid of pain as a fifth vital sign out of the Jayco, right? That's gone now. Because everyone says, what does a 10 to eight mean? I have no idea what that means. But if someone's less depressed and they're more functional and they're part of society, that's a good outcome. And that's what we're targeting with all of these interventions. Is anyone familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy? Yeah, so it's a variation of cognitive therapy, a little bit different though. Um, It's really a form of CBT, sort of directive, experiential type of therapy based on rational frame theory. The goal is for the, uh, the experience to be mindful, reinforce psychological flexibility. The whole idea is that when patients are able to accept that they have a chronic condition that's not going away, which sometimes we don't kind of tell them, You know, I mean I have patients come in seven, eight years, multiple spinal surgeries, um, I said, well, you know, this is a chronic disease. It's not, you're always going to have pain. What are you talking about? No one's ever told me that. I'm going, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, so when you get people to walk through and see life in a flexible manner, psychologically flexible, not rigid, what happens to the patient is that they accept the chronicity of the pain. They find ways to adapt around it. And what does that lead to? Improved, you know, uh, function, improved mood because they have purpose in life. Patients with pain go down the, the depressive rabbit hole because they have no purpose in life, and we've all taken care of those patients, by the way, right? So when they're adaptable and they're flexible and they're thinking, which is what the whole goal of ACT is, they start saying, "Well, you know, I can't do that, but I can do that," and they start to sort of rechange their life and sort of like, you know, almost like redefine their life. You know, the mythical phoenix that burns to the ground and is resurrected in another form. And that's really sort of the essence of it, and it has to do with contact with the present moment. It's very mindful-based, self as content, diffusion, acceptance, what your values are, and committed to action. There have been five randomized control trials that showed that in chronic pain, significant improvement in mood and function. Lance McCracken and, and Kevin Balls are probably ones who've done the most work in this took 171 subjects with chronic musculoskeletal pain and completed a course of acceptance commitment therapy. At a three-year follow-up, 68% of the cohort noted improvement in key outcomes, including pain-related anxiety, physical and psychosocial disability, and depression. Pretty good outcomes for three years, very simple. So these are very powerful kinds of approaches. One clinical consideration, I know this. I, I use this all the time, Here's the two researches I do. I do research in pain and addiction and pain and suicide. So I never get invited to parties, by the way, because they say, (laughs) wow, you are a (laughs) downer." So pain and suicide, and this is just a consideration because most people with chronic pain, about 18 to 50% have pretty active, well, they have passive suicidal ideation, but quite frequently. Fibromyalgia is different. These are very, very high People that have high catastrophizing. This is looked at suicidal ideation and risk of suicide in patients with fibromyalgia and compared to non pain controls in patients with low back pain. Look at at this outcome. So, this is percent of the population that had suicidal ideation. Controls about 3%, low back pain about 18%, fibromyalgia almost 40% had suicidal ideation. Part of that is the way we treat people with fibromyalgia, by the way, like it's not a real disorder, like it's psychiatric, and you need to go see somebody else but me, right? So part of it is that. If you look at odds ratios, I've never seen odds ratios this high. So suicidal ideation odds ratio is almost 27. means 27 times more likely to have suicidal ideation. Low back pain about 4.5. Risk of actually committing suicide, fibromyalgia 48 times greater. Well, compared to low back, about 4.7. So if you're treating fibromyalgia patients, be very cognizant that they're very brittle and that you need to look at some of these factors and have a plan of action. What about functional restoration? I love this. Exercise is a dirty word. Every time I hear it, I wash my mouth out with chocolate. (laughs) So... In my clinic, we have a a really gifted occupational therapist, physical therapist, we're only devoted to chronic pain patients. So occupational therapist does a lot of work around function, how you sit, stand, walk, lift. If you're doing ACT and occupational therapy, you're getting some really good return in terms of function. Uh, A lot of desensitization, sort of resetting that altered central processing of the brain, you know, graded motor imagery, which we'll talk about, which fits in with what Dr. Badiola was saying. Aquatic therapy for particularly fibromyalgia patients is a good place to start because usually it's a red flag if they do really gentle aquatic therapy and they said it really made me hurt, then you know we have a red flag. But it's slow, progressive exercise. We have stuffed turtles in all in our clinic, because patients bring in stuffed turtles because my therapist says it's a tortoise and the hare. The tortoise wins the race, not the hare. This is slow and easy. It's not something fast, because traditional physical How many times have you sent your patient to traditional physical therapy, you just hand them a script, and how many times they come back and say, that was the best damn thing you ever done for me? Do You ever have that happen? What do they usually say? It's worse. No offense to any physical therapist here, I don't want to offend anybody. So some are knuckle-draggers, let's be honest. Three times a week, no pain, no gain, sports medicine model, all of our patients we've seen, they are not gonna do well, and we set patients up to fail. I want you to go do physical therapy three times a week. Well, the co-pays $40 each. I'm there for 15 minutes. They push me to do things. So we either have this sports medicine model, no pain, no gain, or the kind of fake and bake model, right? Little hot heat packs, massage, a little blow in the air, you know? I mean, we have this kind of <laughs> passive kind of thing. So in our, it's finding the right physical therapist who likes and enjoys these patients. My physical, I'm blessed with these therapists. They really like because every patient's different and they get to spend an hour with the patient and they figure out whether the patient pushes themselves too hard and they have to pull them back or if the patient is catastrophizing and is fearful so they approach them differently. We get phenomenal results out of our program just by making it patient-centric. And everyone says, well, how can you afford to do that? Unless you're fraudulent, so physical therapists can see four patients in an hour and charge an hour or they can see one patient for an hour and charge an hour. So financially, it's not gonna make a difference. It's a volume issue. But you find that right physical therapist that has some passion for this, and you'll get phenomenal results. Social support is key in all this. It mitigates against the risk of, of opioid misuse and abuse. People who have social support you know, tend to do better in terms of, of depression, anxiety. I'm kind of forceful, I'm kind of draconian here because I tell patients, unless they are committed to doing something outside of their house, I won't treat them. So they have to join one of the A's, O A A A N A whatever A, or do a volunteer work, or do something. You have to have that social interaction. And we know that social part of this is part of healing because what happens to the patient when they're not engaged with sitting there eating Cheetos and watching reruns of something? What happens? They're distracted, their pain is better. They feel like they have purpose in life. You start breaking the channel, you start breaking these, what, the process and the cycle that they're in. Lastly is greater motor imagery. I'm sorry if people were at our morning session, some redundancy. How many people knew greater motor imagery? How many people believe it actually helps some people? It's a pretty interesting kind of field. So greater motor imagery was developed and basically as looking at pain as a disease of the brain. I love things that move around on slides. I borrowed that from somebody because I would have no clue how to do that. So it has to do with the uh, the theory of pain modulation based on nociception, right? Pain perception involves all areas of the brain. It's the neural matrix, it's everywhere. We used to think it was just this simple pathway. It's all over the brain, right? And we know with, with nociception so the old pain control theory, right? Remember gait control theory, this pathway would go into the spine, up to the brain, you have this gating mechanism. Noceoception is completely different. Noceoception is noxious stimulus. It's not pain, right? So if I did this long enough, it would not be painful, just annoying as hell. So what the theory is is that noceoception is going on 24 seven, right? Annoying, annoying, annoying. The brain is always scanning saying, what does that signal mean? Should I be worried about that signal? Because pain is a signal of danger, right? So as the the, the brain is scanning, now the patient gets anxious or they get frustrated or they get frightened. How does the brain interpret that nociception as danger? What happens at the brain level? Turns up the pain in a simplistic way. But if you look at all the factors that influence nociception in the brain, you have the context, the pain beliefs, expectation, the placebo. The cognitive sept, the hypervigilance, attention, distraction, catastrophizing, mood, chemical structure. Nociception is going in, it's all being altered by this, which is why perception is so important. And when the patient is fearful and catastrophizing, they are dialing up the pain at the brain level. Lorimer Mosley, who's actually the one who's really perfected a lot of the graded motor imagery, has a, tells a great story. He was working in the emergency department in a hospital in Sydney, Australia, construction worker came in and had the claws of a hammer jammed in his neck. And he was holding it with the towel and eating a sausage sandwich. <laughs> and everyone goes, mate, you have a hammer in your neck. And he started dancing around going, hammerhead shark, hammerhead shark. Bumps his knee gently on a table, severe pain in his leg. Well, what happened? He's on the construction site. This accident happens. Everyone starts laughing. He starts laughing. The brain doesn't interpret it as danger and pain. Literally walks himself to the emergency room, but was hungry and stopped and got a sandwich, right? (laughs) Now he's in the emergency room. Everyone has white coats. Everyone's staring at him like, oh my God, there's a hammer in your neck. And he gets a little tiny stimulus. The brain interprets this as danger. The brain is very powerful. He has some great, I'll give you a good website just because it's really good story, but it's so powerful and we see it with patients. Patients get distracted. They really get involved in something. How's your pain? What are you talking about? What pain, right? Or they get, they get hypervigilant. So when people have coexisting issues like post-traumatic stress disorder and they're always hypervigilant, they're always turning the, brain, the pain up at the brain level. So the whole thing about nociception and graded motor imagery is to change the mapping of the brain. So we see this, sort of the central nervous system plasticity and pain. So what happens is CNS, whoops. Boy, I went really far. CNS um, reorganization to response to sensory and emotional experiences. Both structural, functional, intrinsic changes are demonstrated and they occur in a number of locations and synapse. The brain is reorganizing all the time. If we can get it to reorganize in the positive way, you're gonna have less pain and less suffering. So we see this happening in all kinds of things. Look at the neuroplasticity changes in phantom limb pain. So this is really looking at the remapping, looking at at functional MRIs of the somatosensory cortex. So you see brain activity changes in the ipsilateral motor cortex, thalamus, insula, forebrain, and the ACC. This is something you can't ignore. The brain is restructuring in response to the stimuli. So this is a study looking at pain catastrophizing. And they were looking at Um, neural responses to the pain among patients with fibromyalgia. So when they started to catastrophize, they could see it at functional MRIs, there was increase in activities and anticipation of of, of, of pain, the frontal cortex, attention to pain, the ACC and prefrontal cortex, and emotional aspects of pain, the amygdala. They saw these areas light up in response to just catastrophizing. So this brain interaction is critical. So graded motor imagery is really about, you know, about 20 years ago, developed with a group of professionals in Adelaide, uh, Australia, progressively expanding. So research is ongoing. So it's based on the research and the brain is adaptable and changes. We have these neural tabs. So if my right knee is arthritic, I have this neural tag right here that signals that pain in my brain. And the whole idea of graded motor imagery is to remap the brain and kind of shrink that neural tag. So the idea is to do these brain exercises. And the component is really three phases, laterality training. So if you talk to pain patients who've had chronic pain for a long time, they'll tell you that they have a problem with left-right orientation. Everything kind of mushes together. They they have a real hard time distinguishing left-right. So it's about left-right orientation, explicit memory, uh, uh, motor imagery. And the mirror therapy, which is kind of not very... Uh, useful anymore, and then improve function. So it's all these processes. Most of it's done on an iPad. If you can get a therapist that's trained in it, we've had phenomenal re- responses. It's used for chronic pain, CRPS, uh, brachial plexus injuries, amputations, phantom limb pain, uh, stroke pain. How, what interventions do we have for central pain? Really, not nothing. You know, um, Arthritis and now fibromyalgia, and it's been actually used in, in chronic low back pain but it just kind of makes sense that you're retraining the brain as part of this. They're exercising, getting the right medications, the right molecules, but this retraining occurs. These are the references. Uh, this is probably one of the best ones just to get a really good idea. is Lorimar Mosley's TEDx lecture, Why Things Hurt. It's called, it's at Adelaide, and he has a lot of different information. If you send me your email, I can send you a lot of links to some of these, but I think this is more cutting edge. It doesn't replace Interventions. It doesn't replace, you know, good pharmacotherapy. But again, we're looking at that whole person. So I think the new frontier is the brain, not below that. It's below C1. It's the brain. It's retraining the brain and getting all of these pieces working together and treating all the comorbidities that occur in these patients who suffer greatly. You know, and again, remember the old saying that thank God I've come to realize that although pain may be mandatory, suffering is optional. If we do this the right way and we treat the whole person and not part of the person, then we're gonna have a good outcome. So what all of us have been saying is we need a multimodal approach, particularly for these functional pain syndromes, which are very elusive. They're really hard to get a handle on in terms of interventions or even pharmacotherapy. But you need the pharmacotherapy, the interventions when appropriate, the CBT and ACT, the functional restoration, really promoting that social support and the greater motor imagery. And again, treating the whole, not the part. Any questions? Yeah, But uh, yeah, well, uh, so that's why I, but that's know, why I think, but, but here's, let me tell you two things that are happening. So one thing, and, and we're way behind in the apps, the mobile apps in pain, because most of them that have come out are really horrible, but there are some really good programs that are coming out. Uh, Frank Keefe who's a professor and a colleague of mine at Duke has this thing called Pain Coach and it's a CBT um, uh, inter- uh, computer interface one. They've been using that in Skype physical therapy and getting phenomenal results in osteoarthritis in the knee in terms of function and pain. Um, you know, Kurt Konecki who's a primary care doc, got tired because he couldn't find psychiatrists, therapists, anybody, so he developed like an algorithm for, for uh, managing depression and pain patients in primary care and they developed a seven uh, sort of self administered uh, CBT program for the patient that the patient did right in primary care. Phenomenal. And they had a year follow up improvement in mood, function, and pain. So I think we have to think differently about this because what we all do, we all do the same thing. You know, like I always say, it's easier to see the Pope than a psychiatrist. And so you have to kind of develop resources. And I think what's gonna happen because, and the CDC guidelines which push that we should do everything but opiates, you know, acupuncture, physical therapy, CBT, we have to see that as a call to arms saying, okay, if you think that's it, then we need different, different policies. Why shouldn't cognitive medicine healthcare be reimbursed? These guys are not gonna walk home with me, you know that, don't you? <laughs> but why shouldn't you get paid for thinking as a healthcare provider? And until the, until the policies change and reimbursement changes, we're going to have the same problems. I mean, I don't disagree with you. But we're going to have to look at novel ways of doing this. In the addiction world, some of the app stuff has been phenomenal. Kathy Carroll up in Columbia has this CBT, um, uh, computer-assisted program for cocaine addicts, which are very refractory patients. They've gotten almost as equal to face-to-face CBT in terms of decreasing their depression and anxiety. I have a colleague who uses apps, for cocaine addicts and they can actually get feedback 24-7 from people. If you're if, uh, someone who's trying to struggle with um, uh, uh, relapses and addiction, if they're, in a, if they're in a different town and they have cravings, they push a, an app and, it, and the GPS will tell them where all the AA programs are, how to get there. And we have to use technology and we have to change reimbursement for cognitive medicine. Ha- who says hallelujah? Hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> Well, it's, for re- it's basically reimbursement. and That's the biggest issue is some insurances will pay for it, some won't, you know, and, and it's finding the right ones. And we're, we're trying to try to lobby that they actually pay for those services, you know, because they do pay for psychiatry, you know. So we're going to stop right now. Any questions, you can ask all of us. Thank you for staying and have a wonderful time in Vegas.